can be found on page 1022 of your Pew Bible. But first, let's pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. By your Spirit, guide our way as we read your word. Give us eyes to see all that you want us to see, ears to hear all that you want us to hear, and hearts that might be opened and transformed at the reading of your holy word. In your Son's precious name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Malachi 4, 4 4-6 Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Thank you, Carol. And so ends the Old Testament. Kind of a dark word there. Lest I come and strike the land and and a decree of utter destruction. If you were here with us last Sunday, you know I pointed out that Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament that we have recorded. The last prophet to speak a very clear word to the people of Israel. And he lived 400 years before Jesus I want us to look again at these final words of Malachi, specifically verse 5, where Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Everyone was expecting the prophet Elijah to come before the day of the Lord, before the day of redemption. If you'll remember that uh, Elijah was the prophet who was taken up by God by chariots of fire, and they were expecting him to return to speak God's word, to prepare God's people for the day of redemption, for the day of judgment. Well, it's interesting. In Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, identifies his cousin, his locust-eating, honey-eating, camel-skin-wearing, wild, outspoken, yelling cousin, John the Baptist, as the Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist was a very popular preacher who lived in the wilderness of Judea near the Jordan River. People came from all over Judea to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. In fact, our stained glass window depicts John the Baptist. You'll see just the left of the lamb in the middle. Just to the left is John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Why were people drawn to the preaching of John the Baptist? What was it about the message of John the Baptist that would lead people to to travel so many miles to come and hear him speak and even to be baptized by him? What was John's message and how might it apply to our lives today? To find out, I would encourage you to open your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. It may be found on page 1027 of your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. But before I read God's word, let's call again upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. Oh God, as we open your word, I pray again that you might continue to open our eyes and open our hearts that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter three, beginning at verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message that John the Baptist came and brought to the people of Israel. In fact, we will see in Matthew chapter 4, it's the very same message, word for word, that Jesus will later say. Once John the Baptist is, is arrested, Jesus begins to say the very same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the Greek word for repent here is metanoeo, which literally means to change one's way, to repent, to turn around. It's in the second person plural, present imperative, active tense here. To put this message in West Texas terms that we can all understand, what he is saying is, y'all repent now. Stop doing what you've been doing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this very passage in the message. It says, change your life. God's kingdom is here. But what do we need to repent from exactly? How do we need to change What sins do we need to stop committing? 
I'm sure each one of our answers is probably different to that. We probably all struggle with different sins, different temptations. Maybe you wrestle with one of the seven deadly sins of of pride or greed or lust, envy, gluttony, anger, sloth, or all of the above. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in James chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, he says, "Now, now this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This past summer, our family took the Griffin's version of the Griswold vacation. We drove from Amarillo all the way to California, and on the way, of course, we saw some beautiful things. We saw the petrified forest in Arizona. We went to the Grand Canyon, which was, was grand. Uh, we went to the Hoover Dam, which was just an amazing uh, engineering feat, and eventually we made it to Disneyland, and fortunately, it was opened this time, unlike the Griswolds who got there and Wally World was closed. It was open, so that was great. However, as great as the trip was, packing was a complete nightmare. Now, I had mapped out exactly where we wanted to be at what times in order to see as much as possible on the way to Disneyland and our drive. And I told everyone the, the, morning, the, the day before, now, guys, we're going to leave at this time in the morning. And if we leave by this time, then we'll be able to go to these places and get to see these things before the sun sets. It'll be great. And we even packed some bags the night before, so we'd be all ready to go. But the morning of... Even though I woke everyone and stirred them up and we got going, we didn't leave until two hours after what we had planned. Thereby missing the uh, the certain destination I was hoping to hit. I was hoping to see that big meteor crater in Arizona. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a big hole in the ground. But still, I wanted to take the kids there to to see that. And we weren't going to be able to make that. And despite all my yelling and, and pushing and driving, we still left two hours later. I wish I could say to you as your pastor that I'm always quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, but that morning, I was not. I was quick to speak and quick to anger because no one was moving. It was very frustrating. And then I realized the truth of James's words that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. After finally cooling off and resolving to myself that we were not going to get to see that meteor crater that first day, I began to offer apologies to the kids, realizing that their spirits were a little depressed because I had yelled at them, and and they're like, isn't this supposed to be a fun vacation, Dad? I'm not having any fun on the vacation. Which one of the seven deadly sins do you tend to wrestle with? Pride? As Americans, we're often very proud. We make great deals of our accomplishments. What about greed? Our economy is driven by greed. If you remember the original movie, The Wall Street in 1980, you know, the gecko character says, greed is good. What about lust? And sex is used to sell so much in our culture today. What about envy? Everybody wants what other people have. Or gluttony. We live in a, an obese society. What about anger? I've given you an illustration of that already. What about sloth? Or maybe all of the above? What sins do we need to repent from, to stop committing, so we might better glorify God? It's interesting to note that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups that did not like each other, both go out to the wilderness to see John the Baptist, John looks at them, and listen again to how he greets them. You brood of vipers, you who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Clearly, John the Baptist has never read Dale Carnegie's best-selling book, How to Win Friends and Make Influence People, right? I mean, if you want to make friends, you don't call them brood of vipers. Basically, John the Baptist is saying, you proud hypocrites, look at the way you're living your lives. You're not bearing any fruit for the kingdom. The ax is at the root of the tree. He's going to cut you guys off and throw you into the fire. Why did people travel all the way into the wilderness to get yelled at by John the Baptist? What was it about John the Baptist's message that would lead people to want to come see him in the first place? I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 5 it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to see John the Baptist. Why? Why would anyone want to go get yelled at by John the Baptist? It certainly wasn't because he had a convenient location. He was out in the sticks in the desert of Judea. We actually have a picture of where John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River. What a, what a horrible, desolate place. Um, however, if you're interested, uh, I, I'm in conversation with the church in our presbytery, and we might take a joint trip to the Holy Land in 2017. So if you're interested in that, come talk to me or talk to Murray, and we can give you some more information about that in, for 2017. But this is out in the sticks. This is not near anything productive. Today, if you want to plant a church or, or start a new, a new body, you go where the people are. There, there's three uh, key words for planting a new church in our day and age. It's location, location, location. You want to go where the people are going to be, like in the suburbs where homes are being built and you know that people are going to be living there. John the Baptist has a horrible location. He's out in the sticks where nobody lives. John the Baptist broke all the modern rules of church growth. I mean, if you want to really grow your church, you, you preach messages that people want to hear, like uh, how to have your best life now or, or five steps to better living. You don't m- preach messages on sin and condemnation and repentance. John the Baptist was a yeller. Most people don't like preachers who are yellers. He, he dressed funny. He, he looked funny. He smelled funny. He had locust breath. I mean, it was no good. He told people they were sinners and they needed to repent. Why did people travel so many miles to come and see John the Baptist preach? What a weird guy. Why would people people be drawn to the message of John the Baptist? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. I believe people were drawn to the message of John the Baptist because in their hearts, they knew it was true. They knew they needed to repent They knew they needed to change. There was something in their life that they needed to stop doing. As fallen human beings, we all know that we are sinners. If we're really honest with ourselves, we we know that we do things we shouldn't do, and the things we ought to do, we often fail to do. Deep inside, we know that we need to repent. We need to change. But how? As we can see from John the Baptist's ministry, the first step to transformation is confession. Look again at verse six. We read, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People were openly confessing their sins to John the Baptist as he baptized them with a a baptism of repentance. Confession, it's good for the soul. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his Christian classic, Life Together, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Unconfessed sin has a way of eating at our soul. We feel very, very alone. 
James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in his epistle, James chapter five, verse 16, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In the Roman Catholic Church, they have the practice of of congregates going to the priest in a a confession booth and they're able to confess their sins and the priest is able to offer them uh, things to do and, and offer a prayer of confession on their behalf. In the Presbyterian Church, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, so you don't have to go to me or, or to Murray, any kind of priest. You can, you can go directly to God with your confession. You can confess your sins to God. But we also know that there is power in confessing the, our sins to one another. For as James tells us, the prayer of a righteous man, someone who has been made right with Christ through faith in Christ, someone praying for you and helping you stay accountable to avoid those sins is very helpful for our faith. And that's why we encourage people to be in same-gender triads of groups of three or four where we can pray for each other and share our struggles. And of course, as Presbyterians, every week in worship, we always have a, a corporate prayer of confession that we pray together as we just did a moment ago. And we have a time of silent personal confession. Do you notice that when you have these times of silent personal confession, have you ever found that you tend to repeat the same sins week after week? You're confessing uh, whatever sin it might be, asking God to, again to forgive you, Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to to be able to repent from habitual sins that tend to weigh us down? Wouldn't it be great to have that particular sin out of your life so that we're not continuing to stumble on the same thing over and over again? But how do we do that exactly? Let's look again at verse 11 of our text. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. True transformation takes place through faith in Jesus Christ. As we put our faith in Jesus Christ, as we die to ourselves and confess that he alone is Lord of our lives, then the Holy Spirit comes and begins to do a work in our lives from the inside out. John the Baptist was an effective preacher, not because he dressed funny or he ate weird things or he yelled a lot or he dipped people in the water. No, John the Baptist was an effective preacher because ultimately he pointed to the one who is greater than he. In the fall of 2000, uh, after working for Price Waterhouse for four years in Dallas, I, I felt the call to ministry and so I went to Princeton Seminary and I was signing up for my first classes and I saw this class called Theology of Youth Ministry. I had been volunteering with the youth ministry at Highland Park Presbyterian Church where I had been going to church as a consultant, and so I I signed up for that. I thought it'd be good to have some theology to my youth ministry. And I heard Kenda Dean, you know, she's a really good professor, and so I I came into this class, and it was packed. There were about 30 students, and Kenda began, did a brief introduction, and, and she said, you know, I imagine you're here today because somewhere along the way you had a youth director or maybe a Sunday school teacher who really encouraged you in your faith. And so just so we can get to know each other, I would just like for you to say that person's first name and then in one sentence say what it is they did for you. And so the first girl stood up and said, Mary Beth, listen to me when no one else would. Karen walked with me through my parents' divorce. Matt offered comfort after my mother's death. Andrew taught me the Bible. Bill encouraged me. And around we went until everyone in the class was now standing. And then Kennedy said, now I want you to say the exact same thing, but I want you to replace that person's name with the name of Jesus and then take a seat. Jesus encouraged me. 
Jesus taught me the Bible. Jesus offered comfort after my mother's death. Jesus walked with me through my parents' divorce. Jesus listened to me when no one else would. After the entire room had replaced that name with Jesus and we were all sitting down, Kennedy then looked us in the eyes and said, my friends, that's what life is all about. That's what ministry is all about. So they might see Jesus moving in and through you so that he might receive all the glory. John the Baptist was a great preacher because he pointed others to the one who came to save us all. Do our lives point others to Jesus? When people look at us, can they see Jesus in us? The picture that you see up there is a painting of John the Baptist by Matthias Grunewald. It hung over Karl Barth's desk for 50 years as he wrote the church dogmatics. Matthias Grunewald was a, a contemporary of Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. Notice that John the Baptist is not pointing to himself, he's, he's pointing to Jesus. And I believe the best thing that we can do in this life is help point others to Jesus. When people look at us, can they see Jesus in us? If we will humbly repent from our sin and submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then people will begin to see Jesus moving in and through us. But how can we really repent and and put an end to habitual sins? Sure, it's great to confess our sins in in a corporate prayer of confession or a time of private confession or maybe within a small group. But how can we make sure that we don't continue to repeat the same sin over and over and over again? Notice that John the Baptist spent a lot of time out in the wilderness. In fact, as we look at the whole Bible, we've been going through the story, you'll see time and time again, the people that God uses to do a great work for his kingdom, a great work for him, spend a lot of time in the wilderness. Moses was out herding his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness when he saw the, the burning bush. King David was a shepherd boy shepherding his father's sheep when he began to write these beautiful psalms that we now have. And now King David, of course, is known as a man after God's own heart. Amos, the prophet, was a, was a shepherd among Tekoa when God spoke a clear word to him, telling him to go and warn the Jews and Israel. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, as we will read in the next few weeks, we'll see that time and time again, he will go away to be alone with his heavenly Father. For it's in that time alone with God that God begins to transform us from the inside out. Before Jesus launches his ministry, he spends 40 days out in the wilderness, fasting and praying. Before he picks his 12 disciples, he spends the entire evening praying. And of course, before he dies as the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross, he spends the night in prayer, saying, Lord, if this cup could be taken from me, may it be so, but not my will, but yours be done. When was the last time you spent some, some quality time, some, some quantity of time alone with God? In preparation for this message, I actually decided to go on a, a morning hike in the Paladura Canyon. I, I hiked the Lighthouse Trail. You've got a picture of me. That's my selfie. I'm not very good at taking selfies, but there I am at the Lighthouse there. Uh, and actually, here's a picture from the top of the Lighthouse. You can see the canyon below, and, it, and it, it's just beautiful and gorgeous. And, and in order to have the full John the Baptist experience, I actually chose to pack some honey with me. I might have a picture of that. Hold on, honey. There you go. Could not find any locusts to pour the honey on, but I would have been willing to do that, but didn't any appear. 
Now, I'm no John the Baptist, and, and I didn't run into a lot of people while I was out there, but I could feel God's presence in the midst of his creation. As I walked about three miles to the lighthouse, I, I could hear creation speaking, whether it be the chirping of crickets or the speaking of birds, the whistling of birds, or just the wind blowing through the trees. And I was moved to prayers of thanksgiving, thanking God for his amazing creation, thanking God for my family and for our church and how God is using our church to help minister to the needs of others. And as I began to offer these prayers of thanksgiving, I was, I was moved to prayers of confession, confessing my sins and asking God for, for supplication, for, for help for those I know who are struggling, praying for those who recently lost loved ones, like Lori and Bobby Pinkston, who who saw their brother-in-law, Dr. Jenkins, die recently. Or Pris Thompson, who's still mourning the death of Jim. Or, or those who are having surgery, like our own Tom Cambridge, who, who had surgery this last week. Or, or I was thinking of uh, John Dawkins, Patty Lou's son, who, who had a recent surgery. I, I just began to pray for all the needs of our community, all of them that came to mind for me. And I felt this peace, God's hand, saying, I'm with you. And I'll be with you and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If we want to be transformed, if we want to have the peace of Christ, the lasting peace of Christ, then we need to do the kinds of things that Jesus did, who spent a lot of time alone with his heavenly Father in solitude and prayer. Because transformation is ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the great ways that we can help connect to the Holy Spirit is through spiritual disciplines. And solitude and prayer are two of the key disciplines that the earliest church fathers and and, and everyone before them, the prophets, were always spending time alone with God so they might hear from God. They might be strengthened by God. They might be transformed by God. It's that we want to point others to Christ. We've got to begin to live like Christ. We've got to be transformed from the inside out so that we'll begin to bear the fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we spend time alone with God in solitude and prayer, God will begin to transform us. And then we'll begin to point others to Jesus as we live a life that reflects his love. Who is your life pointing to today? Do people know that Jesus is inside of you? They will if you spend enough time alone with him. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you so much for your amazing love that you would save a wretch like each one of us. God, we are people of habitual sins. We are people who often fail to honor you the way that we should. And God, we come this morning seeking transformation, knowing that it's not up to us, it's a work of your Holy Spirit. But we can see that the people who've been transformed by you, there are certain things they do. They make a point to spend time alone with you. And so, Lord, may we make the time we need. We don't necessarily have to go to the Palo or Canyon. We can simply walk in our neighborhood, and as, as we're walking, we can offer prayers for our neighbors. Or we can simply drive our car, of course, with our eyes open, but we can drive the car and, and turn off the radio and just pray to you. Or we can come to the chapel here throughout the week and spend time alone praying to you, communing with you, talking to you, hearing from you. Oh, God, may each one of us take the time we need to be alone with you, to be still and know that you are God so that we might be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, so that we might ultimately point others to you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Speaking of transformation, I'm so excited to see how God is now using Orlando to help